record button here for our podcast and then we'll get going. Romans chapter 3, the first 22 verses. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faith, sorry, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil so that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, No one is righteous. No, not one. This is a quote from the Old Testament. No one understands. No one seeks after God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Unquote. Now, we know that whenever the law says, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And there's a chapter break here, but we need to go on to the next two verses to to complete this thought. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Okay, let's pray as we consider these uh, layered and important words father open our minds and our hearts now to understand this part of scripture help us to think rightly about it and to live rightly in accordance with it let my words and our meditations be acceptable in your sight dear lord in christ's name we pray amen so remember and i'm going to give you a couple questions at the end of the bible study to jot down but remember to jot anything down or make a mental note of any questions you might have and you might have some about this passage So to track with Paul's words here, to track with them and to sort of get our minds around what he's getting at, we need to remember his ambition. What was Paul's ambition? Why did he write this letter? And what is paramount on his heart for the Roman church? Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 17 say, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Paul's eagerness is to preach the gospel. So that's what this letter is. This letter is a primer in the gospel. 
It's like getting a, a newsletter before you hear from, you know, a newsletter from a politician before he holds a rally. He's going to tell you the things he's going to talk about. And then he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That phrase, who believes, is going to be critical this morning. It is the power of salvation to those who believe. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So again, the righteousness of God in the gospel of Christ is revealed through faith. That's all unpacked here in chapter three. So I love going back to the beginning of the book and saying, let's be reminded why he's talking about faith and the law and righteousness. And that's going to remind us where he's going. This is the gospel. And this morning, you might think, well, not a lot of good news in this passage. It's all about how wicked everybody is and how evil their words are. and They're worthless for doing good deeds. And God can't find anybody righteous. Where's the good news? Where's the good news? Well, that there is another righteousness manifest. We looked at two weeks ago and last week that there is a righteousness that is revealed in judgment. Remember that word says one day he will reveal his righteousness in wrath. The revelation of his righteousness will come down upon the earth and that righteousness will be manifest as wrath because one who is righteous when he meets sin, if there's no confrontation, then you have to question the righteousness of the righteous one, right? And so that's one form of God's manifest righteousness. It's his judgment against sin. But this week we see another manifestation of righteousness. There's a second one. It's not just wrath. And that's where the really good news comes in. It's a righteousness, righteousness that is revealed in faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's another righteousness that's manifest. One of God's righteousness manifestations comes against us. It's like a train that's headed for us. But there's another type of righteousness that flows to us. So one works against our nature, and the other one flows for us. There's two types of manifestations of righteousness, and that's what we're going to see this morning. One is against us, and one is for us. That's good news to the world who only thinks of God in terms of his final judgment. And if you talk to people, you'll see probably a lot of recognition that one day God is going to judge the world. And a lot of people just say, yeah, I, I'm... I'm euchred. I'm, I'm cooked when God finally lays the hammer down because I know my own life. I know my own righteousness. It's evil. I've done so much in my life. A lot of people know about the righteousness that's coming like a freight train, but a lot of them don't know about the righteousness that doesn't come against us. It comes for us and it comes through faith. And that's where we need to articulate the gospel. And here's why we need this second manifestation of righteousness. This is my introduction to get a the vast picture here. Can we achieve righteousness before God through natural revelation? Chapter one says no. When it comes to understanding the heavens and how they speak to God's glory, we don't achieve righteousness. You know why? Because all we do is suppress that truth. So that doesn't work. Well, can we, can we achieve righteousness through conscience? What if we just tried to follow the law of our conscience? Does the Bible say we can achieve that? No. Because even if our consciences don't condemn us, all of our secrets will be revealed on the last day. So the conscience doesn't work to make us righteous either. What about the law? Remember, I talked about three barriers that God sets up 
conscience, natural revelation, and law. Well, does the law work to build righteousness into your life? No. The law, all it does is reveal how far you are from God's righteousness. So that's three strikes. We're out. There's, there's no way we can produce a righteousness that is pleasing to God, which is why we move from our nature and how we are in our natural state to the righteousness that God reveals through Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's the sermon preached in about two minutes, but let's see how that works. And I've set up my headings this morning as questions because Paul asks some questions in this passage. He's asking rhetorical questions. He's anticipating objections to his, from his hearers. And I think that's the sign of a good preacher. He kind of knows what you're thinking and says, now I, I know that you probably have a problem with this and I'm going to help you with that. And uh, I, I hope that I can get better at doing that. But the first heading is, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Is he a God that we can put our trust in? Our second heading is, is God justified? Is he justified in doing what he does and saying what he says? Does he have a right to the way he runs the world? And then our final heading is not a question, but it, it is the new righteousness revealed. So let's look at the first heading. Can God be trusted? And so last week we saw how the, the law and the tenets of Judaism were of value if you believed in God, if you obeyed God. So what we learned was that if you were a Gentile and you had no idea who the Israelites were, but you obeyed the law of God without knowing it, then you were actually more of a Jew than somebody who was circumcised and knew the Mosaic law, but disobeyed it and was faithless to God. And so it, it makes the objection now, this is the objection that Paul is anticipating. He's saying, you might be thinking, what's the point of being a Jew or observing the law if a Gentile can become a judge of a Jew? Right? What's the point of being an insider if an outsider can suddenly become our judge and our superior? I mean, what's the value of this inside club? What's the value of God's election over Israel? What's the value of the law? What's the value in being in this special group? I mean, did God basically bait and switch the Jews? Did he just run this whole historic redemption with them and then basically say, you know, just kidding, none of that's important? Did God do that? Can God be trusted? Did God overhype the value of, of observing the law? I mean, in Deuteronomy, it says those who observe the law will be blessed and those who don't will be cursed. Was God just kind of scaring them to, to control them? I mean, what's the deal? Is God trustworthy? Well, what is the value of circumcision if it doesn't save you is what Paul is asking. Verse two, he says, much in every way. What advantage has the Jew? What advantage has somebody on the inside? Much in every way. And he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. Is there a real difference between being a pagan and being within the commonwealth of Israel, the nation of Israel? And he says, of course there is. You guys, we had the word of God. Like if you want one big difference between Israel and all the other nations, Israel had the Ten Commandments. Israel had the Sinai vision. Their leader went up on the mountain and met God face to face, albeit veiled. 
the Old Testament says that when he came down the mountain, his face was so shiny from having met God and receiving the Ten Commandments that he had to veil his face because it was too glorious for Israel to see. The other nations didn't get that. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. And Moses broke them in anger and then went back up and got a new set. God was still faithful to give them the code. And do you know what? He didn't just give them the Ten Commandments. He gave them judicial law and ceremonial law and dietary law for their health, for cleanliness, for hygiene. He created a justice system. It's been widely said, historians have said that the, the Jewish system and the way they treated women and children was light years ahead of the neighboring nations. The women and children could just be sacrificed to the gods at the whim of men. I mean, Israel was blessed. They had the word of God. They had a nation and they had a society that was born out of revelation, a word coming down out of heaven. They had gods. The word here is oracles, the spoken word of God, his declarations from heaven. This is something no other nation had. In fact, Psalm 115 says, in contrast to our God, the pagan gods who have no mouth, who they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They do not make a sound in their throat. And then Psalm 116, the very next Psalm begins with, I love the Lord because he has heard my pleas for mercy. What advantage has the Jew? We, they served the real God, the God who listened to them, who responded to their prayers, who worked in the midst of their lives, who freed them from slavery. The pagans, they literally had statues that did nothing. And in fact, the, the idolatry in the other nations degraded the culture of those nations. It says that those who worship them become like them, so they became useless for good works. Israel was granted to receive the law and to be governed by its righteous standards. And they benefited from his continual mercy and shepherding through the wilderness, through times of war, through times of construction, through times of peace, even through times of unfaithfulness. God did for Israel what they needed to have happen, like a loving father who disciplines his child. So the rhetorical question is, what advantage does the Jew have? Every advantage. Every advantage for living in Israel. They were blessed. And then so he moves on and he continues to, and then he understands, and then he perceives another objection. Well, what would the next objection be? If you say, well, they were richly blessed. The next objection would be, well, if everyone didn't believe in that context, then did then isn't aren't all those blessings too weak? That's what he says. Look in the text. He says, what if some were unfaithful? In the New American Standard, that's translated, what if some did not believe? What about the people who just didn't believe? What about the people, like when they looked over into the land of Canaan, the 12 spies, 10 of them said, we can't do it. What about the faithlessness of the majority? And only two said, yeah, we can do it because God said we would. What about the majority who didn't believe? God, we want to, and guess what the, the objection is? I want to blame God for that. God, you said all these things, but then your people didn't believe. What about them? Does their faithlessness, verse three, nullify the power of God? 
What about those? How do you explain the people who received the oracles of God, but yet didn't believe? How do you explain that, Paul? God is sort of on trial here for, for his oversight of Israel. And whether or not in the New Testament we can be trusted to follow God's promise. If all didn't believe, then isn't God's promise powerless? And this word nullify, it's very interesting. It speaks of soil that is host to a tree that doesn't bear fruit. So essentially the idea here, this word nullify means isn't God's promise like the soil and we are like the tree growing up and there's no fruit on it. So if, if a tree doesn't bear fruit, the first thing you look at is what are the nutrients? What, what's going on with the soil? Maybe is this soil bad? Is this soil, you know, contaminated? Is it uh, bleached out of its nutrients? This word nullify means isn't God to blame for the fruitlessness of Israel, the lack of fruit on the tree. And again, we would have to turn our attention to uh, Matthew chapter one, when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, do you remember what kind of vegetation he met on the way to the temple? It was a fig tree and all of its leaves were out and it said Jesus was hungry. And this is as he's approaching Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, right before the week of the Passion Week, right before he was crucified and the leaves were out and there was no figs on the tree. And Jesus, what did he do? Do you start digging around the soil and say, this thing needs more water? No, he condemned the fig tree. He said, may no one ever eat from your branches again. And it withered up and died. And the disciples were a little bit shocked. They thought, this is a little bit harsh for this little fig tree. But it's a metaphor and it continues an extension of, and it pictures what God has done for his people and how they responded. Isaiah chapter five, this is a verse that you need to, Keep in your back pocket these four verses. Isaiah chapter 5 speaks of the vineyard. It speaks of the garden that God planted in Israel. Isaiah 5 speaks of the vineyard of the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. This is the people of God in Israel. His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of the stones. He planted it with choice vines and he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured and I shall break down its wall and it shall be trampled down and I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they will send no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice and behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold an outcry. Is the fault with the soil? No, God did everything necessary to reveal himself to Israel and to demonstrate his mercy to Israel. 
And yet there was fruitlessness. They crucified the Messiah when he came. So what about those who lived under those conditions but did not believe? What does Paul say? It does not, it does not in any way taint the faithfulness of God. Isaiah 5 says he did everything. He removed the stones. He planted on a choice hill. He gave them the land of Canaan. He delivered all of his promises to Israel in every way. He gave them a king. He gave them the law. He gave them the temple. He did everything. And they rejected the Messiah. So Paul's working through the history there and saying, isn't this God's fault? You know, sometimes I'll discipline one of my children. We'll have a talk. And they'll sort of look at me and say, you know, you're the one that made me do this. I don't know if you ever had that as a parent. You're the one that made me angry because your rule was unfair or, and you know what? Sometimes they have a point. Sometimes it was my bad parenting that maybe exasperated them or drove them to some kind of rebellion. And I have to own that. But with God, he's a perfect father. He never makes mistakes. He never drives us to our sin. The sin comes up from within. And so that's what Paul's saying. It doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means, verse 6. Oh, sorry, we're not down to verse 6 yet. Uh, verse 4, let God be true, though everyone found a liar. So even if the whole world hates God, does the truth reside with the majority or does the truth reside with the Lord God? It doesn't matter if the whole world becomes a liar. Every single one. If every single person on earth rejected God, he would still be the almighty the author of truth and the powerful creator of all things. There is no scale. There's no human scale to tip or affect the character of God. That's what Paul is saying. God is unchangeable. God is unchanging. And there is no amount of human rebellion that can be pinned on him for his faults. I know this can be hard to hear because we believe God is powerful. How can a loving God allow evil in the world? Right. I'm sure you've heard that question. Well, we need to start with the assumption that God is good. And if we don't start with that assumption, we'll never get the right answer to that question. It says, let everyone be a liar, yet God be true. And then he quotes Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That comes from David, King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, that evil sin. And he was supposed to be their best king. And then he had that wicked sin with Bathsheba. And then she was pregnant and, he, and then he murdered her husband, it's so grievous. And then we have this confessional psalm. We have this confessional psalm that is a model for us, for our confession of sin. And so what he's saying is God is true and we admit and we confess to him our sin. Now, just to close off this idea of God being trustworthy, it is not the promise or the oracles that failed but it's the faithless heart of man it's the it's the nature of sin that we're born in that 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 its tentacles have entangled us in every way our failure is not the standard by which to judge god a pastor's failure is not the standard by which to judge the word of god abuses of key doctrines are not the measure to to judge god's standard and so often we do that, don't we? Somebody we really look up to and they believe a certain doctrine and then they become abusive or authoritarian or they you know, morally fail or they leave their family and they say, God must have failed. I don't know how many people I've talked to that say, I've left the church because somebody let me down because they judge God through the eyes of somebody else. And Paul is saying, 
let God be God. Let the word of God define God, not, not his choice plantations, not, not the people that he planted in the garden because we ultimately fail without him. And so on the ground level, I would say when we want to critique God because people have failed, we need to remember that we are the ones that failed. We are the liars and God is true. We are the faithless and he is the faithful. Now, friends, interestingly, we are not, we are not the historic nation of Israel, but we are the church. And we have been granted to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. So in the same way, the church has been given the oracles of God. And the church is still full of failure, hypocrisy, trouble, strife, division, contention. But God still says, you have my word. You have my oracles and you ought to live up to that. You ought to respond to the work I'm doing among you. When fallen man wants to prove God's inadequacy, interestingly, we just look back at chapter one. What does fallen man get up to in his own sin? We don't need to go back into the sordid details of chapter one, but I, I don't think we are in a position to judge the almighty because without God's intervening grace and the Holy Spirit, we become insane and we do things that are contrary to nature and we give up every form of, of natural beauty for evil. And so we cannot be the judge. The godless get up to all manner of iniquity without God intervening. And I would just say for raising kids, it's important too, because the advantage of having God's oracles are many. And obedience and faith are not in competition when raising kids. And sometimes there's different parenting strategies. One would say, well, I don't want to make them do anything. I don't want to teach them a law because I want to teach them, you know, faith and grace. But God doesn't work that way. He doesn't put those two in competition. He gives the law and the word, let's say in the historic sense of giving circumcision and the law. But, but those things are meant to point us to and put our trust in the promises that they represent. So circumcision was, a, a, was uh, an act of faith that believed the promise of God to Abraham, which was to bring a multitude of nations. And so the law is good if we put our trust in the law giver and anticipate the promise of the law, which is that he will write his law in our hearts and cause us to walk in his statutes. See, the new covenant is not in competition with the old covenant in any way. The new covenant applies the old covenant and allows us to walk faithfully in it. It's a beautiful picture. And so, again, I, I, I would strongly and encourage that biblical approach to say, we apply the law and we give our children the law. We expect obedience and adherence to it, but we don't teach them that that will please us or God or earn righteousness from him, but that it's simply just blessed to do these things. And then to also put our trust in and allow his spirit to transform us on the inside as well. Mm. So now let's look at this idea of, is God justified? Is God I mean, we could, we, maybe we resist this and maybe we say, it's hard, God, when I see your people failing. It's hard when I see your people failing not to say it's your fault. Is God justified? And so, and I just want to go back to this idea about Daniel, um, sorry, David for just a minute, because he quotes him in verse four here from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is from David's confession. And what he's saying here is that as he's confessing his sin, he's not just doing it to get a burden off of his shoulders, although he needed to. He's not just saying it so that, you know, the guilt will stop killing him. 
He's actually confessing so that publicly he is echoing God's oracles about him. He is aligning his vision of himself with God's vision of himself. In other words, when we sin, we are saying back to God, you are the one who's true. Your law is the one that I broke. I am out of step with you. It says that so that you may be justified in your words. In other words, David is saying, when God calls us wicked, we need to say amen. That's what David's confession is saying here. So that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, when God unleashes his judgment or when his oracles speak about us, we're not standing up and saying, but God, let hear my side. Hear my side. You know, I was, you know, I was a king. I was kind of bored, you know. Whatever it is, David says, my confession is so that people will look on and say, no, God's word is true. It's a public testimony of the truthfulness of God. And so we align ourselves with God's judgment when we confess our sin. And so here's another objection. Paul is hearing the objections. He's saying, okay, okay, so when we sin and when we confess it to God and when we justify him and say, yes, God, you are right, and our sin is wrong, then how can, is God justified in punishing us? Why not do evil so that good will come? If our sin brings about the acknowledgement of God's righteousness, then why should God inflict his wrath on us? And in brackets, I'm speaking in a human way. In other words, I'm using human logic here. And it's kind of solid, isn't it? It sounds like good thinking like if i sin and then i confess my sin then people will know that god is righteous and i'm not it's a perfect setup i'll keep sinning and god will keep getting the glory for forgiving me if through my lie god's truth abounds to his glory why am i still being condemned as a sinner that's not fair of god i'm bringing him glory I mean, we laugh, but that's, Paul is exposing the rotten ways that we think. And it's amazing how the human mind will say, I know what to do. I can still bring God and I can still get my sin and it'll all work out because we are bent on protecting our own sin. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. We don't have to put our hands up. We are bent on protecting our own sinfulness. Even as Christians, I, I believe this. And we have to fight against the Desire to protect and justify ourselves in our sin. Why not do evil that good may come? So I want you to focus on this because I found this so interesting in the text here. What, what Paul is doing here is he's setting up a paradox that we think we've caught God in. Have you ever heard the argument, uh, the absurd argument, can God himself make a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? And we say, ha, ha. Somebody say, aha, something God can't do, which means he's not all powerful. Well, God is not a creator of absurd, dead-end logic scenarios. And in the same way, God is not handcuffed by our sin in a way that prevents him from judging it. So the sinner would say, I've caught God in a moral dilemma. If my sin is bringing him glory, and God is all about his own glory, right? then he can't punish me for sinning because it brings him glory. So God is, is handcuffed by my imaginary uh, conundrum. It's the same logic. 
can God make a rock so heavy he himself cannot lift it? No, because there's nothing God cannot lift. And in the same way, God is not morally prevented from judging sin just because the confession of sin brings him glory. What does Paul say? Um, he says, if God doesn't judge, verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? In other words, if, if God is not morally allowed to judge us because our sin brings him glory, then who's going to judge the world? Us? Like, who else is there? The world still needs a judge, right? We demand that sin is judged. So he's saying, well, that can't be it because God has to remain the judge of the world. And I would say this highlights a, a, an inconsistency that we have that God doesn't have. He's highlighting a, a part of thinking that humans have that God doesn't struggle with. And this is what it is. We believe that God's righteousness might somehow be limited just to his oracles. That God is a great writer. And they say this about Jesus too. He's a great teacher. And we want to confine Jesus' righteousness just to his good teachings. That we can say, well, that's very admirable. That's very moral. That's very good. But what they don't want is Jesus' actions lining up with his words. What they don't want is God's righteous oracles to be paired with righteous action. They think God is as inconsistent and hypocritical as we are. And we live, I would say, in the worst time for this. Good ideals don't have to be met with good actions or right actions. We live in the time of social media virtue signaling, where we think as long as we say the right virtuous moral thing, we can literally do nothing about it. And we've chalked ourselves up to, to the moral good side. And we think, oh, we're good. That's, I affirm that. I mean, we live in a time where people can affirm things and do nothing about it in their lives. And we essentially say, well, that's good enough. A lack of moral action, great ideals, but no action. God doesn't suffer from that. Every single one of God's ideals, every single one of his judgments, every single one of his oracles will have action and impact and consequence for the real world. God's word and his actions are actually inseparable. He created the world by the word of his mouth. He spoke and the universe came to be. He creates with his word. Likewise, he judges with his word. I mean, Jesus is called the word made flesh. Second Thessalonians 2.8 says that Jesus will destroy the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. God's word is his power and it is real. And so Paul says, if you think that God's righteousness is just some distant, far off ideal that we can sort of bring attention to by sinning, then we think God will never judge sin and sin will just perpetually live on and in some indirect way, bring him glory. And God will be confined to that reality by our sweet logic. Not so. God is totally consistent and he does not bend his consistency in any way. And that's what makes him God. If he overlooked our sin because of some indirect way that it brought him glory, that would disqualify him from judging sin impartially, wouldn't it? If he can overlook sins because it some way brings him glory, 
then he's not he's not an impartial judge, which chapter two told us he is impartial. So God, his perfection is inscrutable. From any way you look at it, God is perfect. He is righteous in his judgment of us. He's righteous in carrying out judgment. He's righteous in how he evaluates the world. He's perfect. And he does not nullify his power to judge or his right to judge. He remains just and he remains the only judge. So is God justified? Absolutely. And so now we can get to some good news, albeit via a very discouraging outlook on the reality of humanity. This passage builds up how deserving we are of wrath. Okay, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to embrace that and feel that. This passage, make no mistake, it builds up how unworthy we are of anything good and how deserving we are of death and how unable we are to achieve righteousness in any way. Because it finishes with the righteousness that God grants for free. You cannot appreciate your Savior Christ if you think that in any way he owes it to you. In any way. This is where Christian joy comes from. So let's look at this passage that summarizes the evil of who we are. And he, quote, he brings this together from Isaiah, Proverbs, and Psalms. These are, this is not one Old Testament passage. This is a collection of Old Testament passages that describes humanity as we know it. In other words, the Old Testament is not irrelevant for evaluating humanity. It is authoritative. It is divine revelation. There is no one righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God, meaning the mind. He speaks of the mind here. There's no one who understands God. There's no one who perceives through nature that God is God and he ought to be worshipped. We suppress that. No one seeks God. No one has the ambition in their mind to say, I want to be a believer. The mind has been corrupted by sin. Uh, they have all turned aside together. They have become worthless. This idea of worthless does not mean that a, a human being is not, does not have worth. Every human being is made in the image of God and is precious as a life. Worthless means morally worthless. Unable to fulfill God's calling of goodness to, you know, and Adam and Eve cultivate the garden, morally worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and their tongues are used to deceive, right? Rather than to tell the truth. So the mouth has been corrupted. The, the, the speech that we have that comes from our minds is also corrupted. The venom of asps is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So the mind, the mouth, their feet are swift to shed blood. Our actions have become corrupt. Our actions have become corrupt with sin and, and, and we don't do good. Our actions and our works are evil. And their paths are full of ruin and misery. And I believe that's from Proverbs. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so their whole way of life has been corrupted. The ambition of mankind has been corrupted by sin. We do not see God Every aspect of our faculties, our minds, our mouths, our logic, our feet, our motivation, everything's been corrupted by sin. And, and theologians have encapsulated this under the doctrine known as, and I'll give you this word so that it can sort of encapsulate it, total depravity. 
total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as they can possibly be. Cause you can say, well, I know my, my grocer who doesn't know the Lord or, you know, I have a lawyer friend. He's a great dad and he's, you know, got kids and he pays his taxes and he's actually a fairly honest guy. So this doesn't apply to him. It doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they can be. It just means that there's no aspect of the human being that hasn't been touched by sin. There's no secret path that we have that we can take to God. Like, let's say our logic. Or let's say our mouths. You know, we can say things that are morally pure and that can get us or lead somebody else to God. Every part of us is corrupt. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are actually dead in our sin. That would be completely dead. That would be the fingers aren't still wiggling. You know, the toes are not tapping. Dead means dead. A person who is outside of Christ has no life. They have no way of responding to God. We cannot appeal to their emotions. We cannot appeal to their logic. We cannot appeal to their moral sense. We cannot even appeal to nature. Every aspect of the person is corrupt and they have rejected God. That's what total depravity means. And this, this chapter is, again, I've said, theologically famous for laying that case out from the Old Testament. There's nothing you can do. If you're outside of Christ, you're dead. We talked about this at dinner, right, When We talked about being dead outside of Jesus Christ. And then he brings us life. And Romans 6 talks about that a little bit more. There is no one who seeks God. There's no seekers. So the seeker-sensitive church makes no sense. Because there are no seekers. No one seeks after God, verse 11. And so at the conclusion of that, verse 18, he says, what the law says, it speaks to everyone who's under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. What's the point of the law? It encapsulates the whole world. It describes all of us. Everyone. It makes the scope of our evangelism very easy. Everybody needs it. Everyone. Because the law speaks to all of us. And anywhere where the law spreads, all it finds are people who are condemned under God. The law doesn't shine a light on something. Oh, there's a righteous one. They don't need the gospel. Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs righteousness. And not the righteousness that's coming on D-Day, on God's final judgment. That's a righteousness that's against us. We need something else. The whole world is accountable to God. God is the be-all and end-all. He is righteous. He is the judge. He is justified. He is trustworthy. His promises are sure. And we are all accountable to him. Verse 20, key verse. And this is going to be expanded in chapter 4. Key verse. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Like I said, if, if the law is a flashlight, all it does is reveal a knowledge of sin. All it does is show you where you've fallen short. And that's in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law just shows us how far we are from God. And it shows us that the righteousness coming on D-Day, on Judgment Day, is not a righteousness that works for us. That's a righteousness that comes against us. So what do we need? Verse 21. But now, this is the, this is the start of the turning point where Paul turns from the state of mankind and the bad news that all of us are under sin, all of us are condemned by God. This but, in verse 21 in chapter 3, is a hinge point in this book. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. 
So the law is one manifestation of God's righteousness. And it's an announcement that everyone's going to be judged according to that law. That's one way God manifests his righteousness. And Paul says, guess what? There's another door. There's another beam of light. There's another stream of righteousness. There is another way God has revealed his righteousness. And this one doesn't crush you. It has been manifest apart from the law. Now, Paul makes a really key point here so that we don't get lost in the idea that the law and the prophets are not important. Well, that's the old covenant. That's God's old righteousness. But now there's something new. He says it's manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's so key. The Old Testament bears witness to this righteousness. The Old Testament is a light pointing toward this new righteousness. Verse 22, this is the climax of this passage. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So think of the way God manifests his righteousness in the law. And it is magnificent and it is terrifying and it is coming and it is perfect and it is all encompassing. It is comprehensive. And there's another way that that same righteousness, it's the very same righteousness. It's just manifest in a different way. This way is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same righteousness. It's the same moral demands of God. It's the same moral perfection of God. It's the same righteousness and all-powerful uh, omnipotence. It's the same righteousness. It's revealed through faith in Christ. It's revealed in Christ. The one manifestation works against us in judgment. This manifestation works toward us as a gift. Now, who gets this gift? Who gets this manifestation? Who receives this righteousness? The same group that has always received the blessing from God. Those who believe. End of verse 22. Middle of verse 22. It's the same righteousness through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, It is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith to all who believe. In Israel, all who believed were counted righteous. God's acceptance of humanity has never, the basis of which has never, ever, ever changed. Those who please God are those who live by faith. It's not those who merely got circumcised, it's those who put their trust in the promise that circumcision pointed forward to it is a belief and friends today as part of the church we live by that same righteousness we don't we don't earn god's salvation by living in the law that's not how we earn our salvation we earn our salvation through the righteousness manifest through faith and then we live according to the law as the way of living i mean the way of living everyone's got to live some way and so if you're in Christ, guess whose law you live by? God's. It's very simple. It doesn't mean we earn our salvation, but it, that's the way of life of the Christian. It's God's law. And so it's a righteousness that comes to us as a gift. It's a righteousness that we don't have to be afraid of. It's a righteousness that we do not, we do not cower in fear when we think of God's righteousness revealed. When it comes through faith in Christ, it is a freeing righteousness it is a accepting righteousness it is a righteousness that god clothes us in it is a it is a righteous garment like when joseph received 
as the favored one, that beautiful coat from his father. So we receive from God as his favored ones through faith, not from anything we deserve, a righteous garment 